Awesome. Thank you, Pastor Steve. That's Pastor Steve, our senior pastor, overseeing all of our eight campuses, which is awesome. Can we have some lights on the stage, guys? That would be great. Uh, it is so good, to, and it's uh, my privilege to welcome uh, Pastor Amy Walker here today, which is awesome. Some of you will know Amy, some of you won't. Amy and Dave have been a part of this church for many years, uh, and prior to that, Amy was on staff with Shore Elam, which was an amazing, it still is an amazing uh, Elam, uh, Elam Church in the city, used to be pastored by her dad, who's a complete legend in Elam, New Zealand. Amy has a ministry not just in New Zealand, but overseas in America and other places as well. Uh, it really is a privilege to have Amy to come and share, a real teacher of God's Word. And for those ladies who came along to replenish, in about eight or nine weeks, we have another women's event um, that Liz is organizing, and it's going to be a one-day retreat day that Amy is going to lead. Now, that cost, the cost is super cheap. It's only $20. You can register for that any time from now on. It's in the middle of September, 17th of September to be exact. And uh, it's going to be a lovely, amazing time uh, for a bunch of ladies who are keen to come together and allow God to do a deeper work in their lives. But for now, it's wonderful to have Amy here. Can you please put your hands together? Welcome Pastor Amy. She comes and shares the word today. Thanks, Mike. Good morning. I'm not normally at the nine. I normally sleep in a bit and come to the 11. So it's good to be up bright and early with you. And, you know, like Steve's shared about that series, I have been finding this such a blessing and a real timely reminder that God's word never dates, that it stands firm, it is true for all generations, and also of the blessing when we choose to align our lives with his word. So I have the privilege of continuing this series today, and we are up to command number six, thou shalt not murder. Now when my husband Dave said to me, oh, what are you speaking on? And I said to him, thou shalt not murder. He said, well, that's good because you've had a lot of practice at that one. And I am pleased to tell you that as much as my family may push my buttons at times, they are all alive and well, and they will be here later in the 11 o'clock service. But you know, if we're really honest, of all the commands, this one maybe feels a little bit unrelatable. You know, if you think about the ones that we've already looked at, we've all envied something or someone at some point in time. We have all told a white lie or even an outright lie to save face. Maybe we thought it would protect somebody. We've likely taken something or borrowed something from someone and never given it back. And we've probably all struggled with our sexual purity at some point in time. Abstinence in dating is hard. There's something that we can all have taken from the messages so far. But as much as we might joke about murder, you know, I know I have definitely sent Dave texts that have said, if you want your children to be alive, you need to come home really soon. <laughs> or I have said to a friend or to a family member, don't, I'm going to kill you if you tell that story. Don't you dare tell that story. But there is no intention on my part whatsoever to actually carry through with that. It is just a figure of speech. It's a joke. For most of us, murderous intent doesn't lurk in our hearts. 
And so we can look at this command and we can think that's for someone who's truly evil. That's for the serial killers out there. What relevance does thou shalt not murder have for me? And I want to suggest today that this command is far more influential in shaping how we see and how we live out our lives than we might realize. And so what I want us to do is we are going to travel back to Genesis. And we are going to look at Scripture's very first mentions of the topic of murder. And we're going to consider what they reveal about who we are, but also what they reveal about who God is. So if you are old school and like paper like me and you have your Bible with you, or if you are on an app, I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 9. And the context here is post-flood. And God is having a conversation with Noah, and he has been telling him that you now get to eat the animals too. So what you have to understand is that when God created the world, death was not a part of it at all. They could only eat the vegetation. But post-flood, God is saying, I not only give you the vegetation, I also give you the animal kingdom. And he's told them that you may eat the animals so long as their lifeblood isn't in it still. And then in verse 5, he turns his attention to the lifeblood of humanity. And he says, I will surely demand an accounting for your lifeblood. I will demand an accounting from every animal. What he's saying there is any animal that kills a human, I will hold them to account for it. And from each man too, I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number, multiply on the earth and increase upon it. And so what we see here, the very first thing revealed is that thou shalt not murder reveals our identity. Before I dive into that, I want to give you a little bit of context for the passage that we've just read. So I mentioned that this is a conversation between God and Noah. And what God is actually forming with Noah here is called the Noahic Covenant. Now this matters because our thou shalt not murder, along with all the other Ten Commandments, are part of the Mosaic Covenant. We don't talk a lot about covenant in our day, in our culture, but covenants are the essential building blocks of the story of Scripture. And they show us at a very practical level what it means to live as the people of God, what God expects of his people, how we are to relate to him, but also how he will relate to us. They're reminders to us that not only is God a promise-making God, but he is a promise-keeping God. Because he doesn't just tell us something, he binds himself to what he has said he will do in irrevocable covenants. He commits to do his part, to be faithful to his word, no matter what. And there are four explicit Old Testament covenants 
covenants, the Abrahamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the Davidic covenant. And as you might have guessed from that, they're all named by the man whom God made the particular covenant with. And I'm stressing that there's four because two of them contain this command to not murder. Both the Noahic and the Mosaic covenant command us to preserve life. And that means if God mentions it twice, if it forms part of two of his covenants, it is a big deal in his eyes. He wants us to realize that this matters. But something else is happening in the Noahic covenant. Not only are we commanded to preserve life, but God commits to preserve life. And so following the flood, he says to Noah, he says, I will never again, never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And he says to Noah, so that you know that I'm going to preserve humanity, I'm giving you a sign. And we read in verse 13, he says, I have set my rainbow The Hebrew there is kasheth, which means a warrior's bow. So I have set my warrior's bow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of covenant between me and the earth. And so what God is saying is, I am not at war against humanity. I have dealt with the issue of sin, and as a sign of my grace towards you, even though your actions might still deserve destruction, I have put my bow in the sky. I've hung it up. I'm showing you grace. Second Peter says, I'm allowing time for all to come to repentance. And so in this covenant, we see this call that we must preserve life, but also the lengths that God will go to to preserve life. And the reason for that is we are immensely valuable in his eyes. You know, we just sung this morning, how precious is my Savior's blood. But you know what this passage teaches us? Our blood is precious to God. So he says in this passage that we've just read, your blood is so precious, it is so valuable that I will demand an accounting for it. Do you know what that says? It says you're not consumable, you are not replaceable, you are valuable, I see your blood. And it's really important that we understand this because the Israelites to whom this command was being given had been enslaved for 400 years. They had been dehumanized for 400 years. Genocide had been committed against them. Their children had been slaughtered. And God's saying, your lifeblood is precious to me. I will demand an accounting for what has happened to you. And the reason that our lifeblood is so precious is that this scripture tells us, along with the creation account, that we are made in the image of God. Of all of God's creation... Humanity, male and female, are the only ones of whom he says, they are made in my image. This is our true identity, that we are image bearers created to reflect God. 
And so he commands us as his image bearers to what? To be fruitful and increase. He gives Noah the very same command that he gave Adam and Eve. And this command is about far more than procreation. It's about stewardship. It's about growing in this call to be image bearers, stewarding the creation of God so that by the way we rule and subdue, which is part of the Genesis 1 call to be fruitful, by the way that we live our lives ruling and subduing, we would show the world what it looks like to live under God's order and God's design. And so he says, you are image bearers. And the reason that he has to drill this into the Israelite people, even though he's already given them this command through Noah, is not only because of what we've just talked about, that they have been dehumanized, that they have lost sight of the fact that they are image bearers, as they are being prepared to go into the promised land, they are going to move into a territory where culturally it was acceptable to practice human sacrifice. And God is saying, that is not my way. You don't get to go in and act like the people around you. I am calling you out to be my people. And you know, as we live in a culture that is often opposed to God's ways, we have to do the same thing. We have to recognize that there will be times where aligning with what God says means coming out of the culture. Because we're called to witness to what it looks like to be God's people. And so just like the Israelites had to reject the way the cultures around them did things, sometimes we will too, because part of being an image bearer is that we are called to be holy as God is holy. You know, Pastor Mike mentioned my dad, and he was a phen- or is a phenomenal Bible teacher, but he used to say this thing all the time in his messages. And he was my pastor for the first 35 years of my life, and I really didn't realize how lucky I was until he wasn't. But he used to say to us, you never lock eyes with someone who doesn't matter to God. And I want to add to that this morning that we never lock eyes with someone who isn't made in the image of God. And so as we talk about this, as we realize our own value as image bearers, as we recognize that our own blood is precious in the eyes of God, we need to recognize that that's true of one another, not just in this place where we're all perfectly holy, but also out in the world where we come up against people who annoy us and frustrate us and we don't understand that they're made in the image of God. They are not an inconvenience. They are not a disruption. They are not replaceable. They are image bearers. And part of our call as the people of God is to help them see their value again by coming out of the culture that says you don't matter. Your life is replaceable. Your life is consumable. You are just a number. And saying, no, you are precious in the eyes of God. But I don't know about you, it's hard sometimes to interact with people in a way that shows them they're valuable. 
And so this is why the second thing that this command reveals about us is maybe not as pleasant to receive. Because I don't know about you, I'm happy to be told I'm made in the image of God, I'm precious, I'm valuable, my life matters. That feels good. But the second thing that this command reveals is the propensity of our own hearts to sin. I want you to flick earlier on in Genesis with me to Genesis chapter 4, where we have the first murder recorded for us in Scripture. And don't you love that the Word of God is filled with how God actually deals with the messy stuff? It's not all theory. We have for us, in the very opening chapters of Scripture, a case study of how God deals with things when we don't do things as he intended us to. And so Adam and Eve have had these sons, and we're told that Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. And in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, but Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. And the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now to understand a little bit about what's happening in this passage is in the original language, it would have been understood that there was a known time and a known method of offering sacrifice. So in other words, Cain knew what God wanted from him. Cain knew that only a blood offering was an acceptable offering, an acceptable atonement for sin that would allow him to approach God. And he chose, in his pride, not to offer it. That he would approach God on his terms, in his way. And when God says, that actually isn't a sufficient offering, he gets angry. And he's angry that God has favored his brother and not him. He's angry that God won't let him do things his own way. And you know what God says to him? Why are you angry? If you do what is right, if you align yourself with my word, this is really simple. You can approach me. You can live under my favor. But if you want to do things your way, then you're going to have to bear the consequences of that. And he says to him, that powerful verse, if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you, you must master it. And as I look at my own life and the times that I haven't interacted with people in a way that honors them as image bearers, these same things, anger, 
frustration, pride, wanting to do things my way, thinking I'm entitled to things that I'm not getting. Those same emotions that Cain has, I've had. And so in the same way that God says to Cain, check your heart, be willing to master sin, be willing to do what is right, we have to learn to check the propensity of our own hearts. You know, I'm going to be really honest that until I hit my 20s, I just thought I was a really nice person. And then I realized life just hadn't given me many reasons up until that point to not be nice. You know, none of us really know what we have the ability to do until we're under pressure. And when I hit my 20s and my husband was unemployed and we had mountains of debt and we were broke and we had three kids, four and under, one of whom we were fostering who had enormous needs and I just felt pulled in every direction. I felt disappointed. I felt like, God, why is my life falling apart? Why is nothing going to my plan? I became really angry. I lashed out at my children. I lashed out at people around me. I felt entitled and I felt ripped off. And one day my mother said to me, you need to sort your attitude out, young woman. As only a mother can. But as I was processing some of these things with my counselor at the time, she said, oh, you've met your shadow. She said, I always think it's good that people in ministry meet their shadow. And I said, well, I don't particularly like my shadow and my shadow can go away, thank you very much. But whether we like to admit it or not, we all have this ability to sin, and we all have to make the same decision that Cain does. Will we master sin, or will it master us? Because God says to us in Colossians 3 that we are called to take off things like anger and rage and malice and slander that those things are not befitting of the people of God and that we instead must put on things like love and compassion and patience and humility. But as I discovered when I met my shadow, it's really, really hard to do that in our own strength. In and of ourselves, we do not have the ability to master our anger. We do not have the ability to conquer our pride. But we must, if we don't want to mar the image of God in ourselves and in the people around us. And this is the third thing that this command reveals to us. The hope as we come to terms with the propensity of our own hearts to do evil, to be angry, to be prideful is thou shalt not murder reveals the grace of God. We're going to continue reading the story of Cain and Abel. So God has said, Abel's blood is crying out to me. That principle that we've read in the Noahic covenant, I demand an accounting for this blood. I cannot ignore it, Cain. And so he says to Cain, now you are under a curse and you're driven from the ground which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. And Cain says to the Lord, 
my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So we see the justness of God here. Abel's blood is crying out. It has to be accounted for. There is a curse that must follow this act of sin. Cain has to be punished. And his punishment is to become a wanderer driven from the Lord's presence. The punishment he truly deserved was his own death. The Noahic covenant has already made that clear to us. Wasn't revealed at that point in time, but remember, God's not developing things as he goes along. He's known from the beginning, blood must be accounted for. And in the Noahic covenant, he says, if you kill a man, then you too must die. But Cain doesn't get that punishment, even if it's what he deserves. A mark is put upon his life. We don't know the details of what that mark looked like, but what we do know is it was a mark of grace. That grace was sparing him the punishment he truly deserved. God showed Cain grace, and friends, God shows us grace. You know, as Moses went on to develop the law and to teach the people of Israel what it looked like for them to live as the people of God, he established something called cities of refuge. In Numbers 35, verses 11 to 12, we read this instruction. Select some of your towns to be your cities of refuge, to which a person who has killed someone accidentally may flee. They will be places of refuge from the avenger, so that anyone accused of murder may not die before they stand trial. The language used of the cities of refuge is the same that is used in Hebrews 6 where we are invited to flee for refuge, to lay hold of the hope set before us. What is the hope that is set before us? It's Jesus. Jesus is our city of refuge. And so just as God made provision for Cain, just as God made provision for the Israelite people when they took the life of another, just as he provided them refuge from the avenger, he provides refuge for us from the avenger of our souls. We are all guilty of sin, accidental and very intentional. And scripture is clear that the wage, the penalty of all sin, not just murder, is death. That that is the price our sin requires. But when we flee to Jesus, when we run to our hope, when we run to our city of refuge, he pays that wage. He pays that price for us. And like Cain, we are spared the punishment we deserve. But it's like one of those infomercials. It's like, wait, there's more. 
because God doesn't just spare us what we deserve. He gives us the ability to master sin. I said that we cannot do that in and of ourselves. We need a supernatural power. We need a supernatural grace to live as the image bearers of God. And Ephesians 1 teaches us that God has put a mark on our lives. He has put a seal of grace on our lives, the mark of the Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, a guarantee of all that is to come. But he's also the one who enables us, Romans 8 tells us to cry out, Abba, Father. He's the one who enables us to live in intimacy. He's the one Ephesians teaches us that enables us to walk in the way of the Spirit, to possess the fruit of the Spirit instead of the things that lead to death. So God's grace is so much more than just forgiving, so much more than just saying, I'm not going to let you be punished. He empowers us to live the life that he has called us to. The Holy Spirit is our reminder that we are fundamentally changed, that though God's image was marred in us at the fall, it has been redeemed in us. And we have been given a new heart, a renewed spirit that is capable of serving God, that is capable of mastering the sin that seeks to master us. Cain was spared the punishment of death, but he was still condemned to be a wanderer outside of the presence of God. But that's not our story. That is not our testimony. Because of Jesus' all-sufficient sacrifice, even if we have been a murderer, that doesn't have to be our fate. You know, the Ten Commandments were given to Moses. The Jewish people looked at him as the greatest of all the prophets. You know, Moses was a murderer. He ran for refuge from Egypt after he took the life of a man in an act of anger, in an act of rage. Was it just anger? Yes, but it was anger nonetheless that caused him to take the life of another. And yet, do you know what Scripture says about Moses? That he spoke to God face to face like one would speak to a friend. And that's what God invites us to. You know, if you have struggled with anger, if you have struggled with pride, if you have devalued your own life, maybe you've even tried to take your own life. If you've been guilty of manslaughter or even murder, we can be friends of God. No matter what our past has held, if we will just run to Jesus. The image of God can be restored in our lives, friends. That is the hope that we have, that we can step into our birthright blessing of being made in his image and of being fruitful and increasing and reminding others that they are too made in his image. Mike's going to come, and as he does, I just want to pray for you. Because I really felt in worship, particularly in that area of depression and suicidal ideation, that there are some of you 
for whom you have felt that your lifeblood isn't precious. And maybe you've struggled with the guilt of some of the things that you have done to yourself. And I really believe that God wants to remind you today that you are precious in his sight and that in Jesus there is a way forward. There is hope for your tomorrow. There is a purpose for your life as his image bearer. So, Father, we want to thank you that your word is truth and it is power and it is hope. And we thank you for the truth today that we are image bearers, that our lifeblood is precious in your eyes. And we thank you that you have given us this purpose, this purpose of reflecting who you are, of being your image bearers. And we just confess, Lord, that there are times where we have allowed that image to be marred, where we have marred it and devalued it in others, and we ask your forgiveness, Lord. We ask that we would be a people today who go forth knowing that every person we lock eyes with matters to God, is made in his image, and that not only would we honour that in ourselves, but that we would honour it in the people around us, not by works, not by striving to be better, but by allowing the Holy Spirit to fill and empower. Father, we thank you for your grace, your grace that makes a way no matter how we have sinned, your grace that doesn't just spare us punishment, but invites us into the most holy place into the intimacy of being your children. And so I just bless every life here today, Lord. I declare valuable image bearers who will go forth and be fruitful and increase, who will rule and subdue in the places and the areas that you have entrusted them with, that others might see how they live and desire to be restored in the image of God. We thank you for the privilege of being your people. Make us holy as you are holy. In Jesus' name, amen. Awesome. Thanks, Amy. So good. And look, Amy's going to stick around a little bit after the service, and some of our pastors and our pre-team will be available. And if you'd like prayer for anything, then please don't leave this place without getting that moment with God this morning. Amen. You know, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, and like Amy said, you've never come to that place of realizing that God is your refuge. If you've never come to that place of being made a child of God and being welcomed home in that sense, I just want to speak to you for a moment. You know, the Bible says in John 3, 16, that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. God loves you and he wants you to know what it is to live in the fullness of of what you were created for as an image bearer. But Romans 3 says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, fallen short of that standard as image bearers. Every one of us, me and you. And that's why Jesus came to redeem us, to restore that in us, to pay the price for us that we might be made right with God and find forgiveness. And in John 1, it says, To all those who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Is that you this morning? 
Is this your day? Is it time to come home? Is it time to know God's forgiveness in your life? Is it time to be restored and redeemed? If that's you today, I'd love to invite you to pray this prayer with me, just where you're sitting. I'm going to lead us in this prayer. And if you would like to come home today, if you'd like to find God's refuge for your life, if you'd like to be forgiven, if you'd like to know what it is to have a new start, then I'd encourage you to pray this prayer with me from your heart to the Lord this morning. Come on, let's all close our eyes and bow our heads just for a moment of privacy. Here we go. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you that you love me. God, I admit today that I have sinned and that it keeps me separated from knowing you and experiencing your love and power in my life. I believe Jesus came as my city of refuge, that in him I might find a new start. I might find forgiveness. So Jesus, I give myself to you today. I ask for your forgiveness in my life. I receive you right now as my God, as my Savior, I ask you to fill me with your Holy Spirit and make me new that I might know you and know who I am meant to be in this world. I commit myself to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask everyone to keep their 